Hello and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey and today I am going to be reading chapter one of the 1927 translation into English of Alexandra Kolontai's 1923 novel called Red Love. So I did a little podcast introduction to this in the last episode. If you have not listened to that episode, you can go back and revisit it. But since I think I'm going to go ahead and read this entire novel, I'm going to just dive right in. And obviously, since I'm going to be reading the novel in its entirety, I'm going to try to do it chapter by chapter. So some of the podcasts may be a little bit longer than they have been in the past or shorter, as the case may be. And also, I have just upgraded my Buzzsprout account to include something called Magic Mastering, which is supposed to sort of smooth out the quality of my audio. I am not a professional podcaster by any stretch of the imagination, and I really don't know what I'm doing. I essentially just have a a microphone and I'm using GarageBand. So I'm hoping that this new software package or whatever it is that Buzzsprout is offering will improve the audio quality of my podcasts. I know that they've been somewhat rough or uneven uh, up until this point. So hopefully you will notice a difference. Anyway, this is chapter one of Alexandra Kolontai's Red Love. Vasilisa was a working girl, 28 years old, a knitter by trade, thin, anemic, a typical child of the city. Her hair, cut short after typhus, grew in curls. From a distance, she looked like a boy. She was flat-chested and wore a shirtwaist and a worn-out leather belt. She was not pretty, but her eyes were beautiful, brown, friendly, observant, thoughtful eyes. Those eyes would never pass by another sorrow. She was a communist. At the beginning of the war, she had become a Bolshevik. She hated the war from the first. Collections had been made in the shop for the front, People were ready to work overtime for the Russian victory. But Vasilisa objected. War was a bloody horror. What was the good of it? War brought hardships to the people. And you felt so sorry for the soldiers, the poor young fellows, like sheep being led to the slaughter. When Vasilisa met a detachment on the street going to war in full military array, she always had to turn away. They were going to meet death but they shouted and sang at the top of their lungs, and how lustily they sang, as if they were out for a holiday. What forced them? They should have refused. We won't go to our death. We won't kill other men. Then there would be no war. Vasilisa was able to read and write well. She had learned from her father, a compositor. She read Tolstoy and liked his work. In the shop, she was the only one for peace. She would have been discharged, but all hands were needed. The manager looked in askance at her, but did not let her go. Vasilisa was known throughout the district. She is against the war, a follower of Tolstoy. The woman stopped speaking to her. 
She doesn't want to have anything to do with her country. She doesn't love Russia. She is lost. Reports of her reached the local organizer, a Bolshevik. He became acquainted with Vasilisa and talked to her. Soon his opinion was formed. A girl of good character knows what she's about. The party could use her. She was drawn into the organization, but Vasilisa did not become a Bolshevik immediately. She quarreled with the members of the party, asked them questions, and went away furious. After long deliberation, she came back of her own accord, saying, I want to work with you. During the revolution, she helped in the work of organization and became a member of the Workers' Council. She liked the Bolsheviki and admired Lenin because he opposed the war so uncompromisingly. In her debates with the Mensheviki and the social revolutionists, she spoke skillfully, heatedly, tempestuously, never at a loss for words. The other women, working women, were timid, but Vasilisa always spoke up without hesitation whenever it was necessary, and what she said always was clear and to the point. She won the respect of her comrades. Under Kerensky, she was a candidate for the municipal Duma. The girls in the knitting shop were proud of her. Now, her every word was law. Vasilisa knew how to manage women, speaking amicably, abrading them as the case required. She knew everyone's troubles, for she had been in the factory herself since her girlhood, and she defended their interests. Her comrades sometimes rebuked her. Can't you forget your women? We have no time for them now. There are more important things. Vasilisa flared up gave the comrades a good berating and quarreled with the district secretary, but she did not withdraw her demands. Why are women's affairs less important? This idea is a habit with all of you. That's why women are backward. But you can't have a revolution without the women. Woman is everything. Man does what she thinks and suggests to him. If you win over the woman, half of your work is done. Vasilisa was very belligerent in 1918. She knew what she wanted and she did not compromise. The others relaxed a bit in the last few years, lagged behind and stayed at home. But Vasilisa carried on, always fighting, always organizing something, always insisting on a definite point. She was tireless. Where did she get her energy? She was delicate with not a drop of blood in her face, only eyes, sympathetic eyes, intelligent and observant. Vasilisa received a letter, the long and hungrily expected letter from her man, her comrade, her lover. They had been separated for months. There was nothing they could do about it. First, the civil war, and now the economic front. The party was mobilizing all its members. The revolution was no game. It demanded sacrifices from everybody. So Vasilisa, too, brought her sacrifice to the revolution. Nearly always, she had to live without her lover, far away from him. They were torn apart at opposite ends of Russia. Her friend said, you're better off this way. 
He'll love you longer because he won't get tired of you. Perhaps they were right, but life was sad without him. True, Vasilisa had very little free time. From early morning until late at night, she was overwhelmed with work for the party and for the Soviet, one crowding out the other. Important, urgent, fascinating work. But when she came home to her little room, her heart was convulsed with longing for her lover. She felt an icy draft. She would sit down to drink tea and to think. It seemed as if no one needed her, as if she had no comrades, although she had worked with them all day, as if she had no goal for which she was striving. What was the use of it all? Who wanted it? Mankind? Men couldn't appreciate it. Today, again, they had spoiled something, called one another names, made complaints. Everyone was working for himself alone. They refused to understand that they must live for society. They could understand. Even Vasilisa had been insulted, rudely abused, reproached for her workers' payock ration card. The devil take it. She didn't need it. Her comrades had persuaded her. Now her strength was leaving her. She felt dizzy. There she sat, leaning on the table and drank her tea, nibbled rock candy and brooded over all of the affronts of the day. Now she could see nothing good or splendid in the revolution, only failure, vexation, and struggle. If only her lover had been there, then she could have talked and unburdened her heart. He would have caressed her tenderly. Why so sad, Vasya? A tomboy like you, afraid of no one, challenging everybody, overlooking nothing. And now look at her. There she sits with ruffled feathers, like a puffed up sparrow under the cable. He would pick her up. He was strong, would carry her about the room like a child and sing a lullaby. They would laugh. Her heart ached with joy. Oh, how Vasilisa adored her lover, her man and comrade, a handsome fellow, tender and loving, so tender. Thinking of him, Vasilisa felt even more wretched. Her attic was so desolate, so lonely. She sighed. Clearing the tea things, she scolded herself. What in the world do you want? Do you expect only joy from life? You love your work. You have the esteem of your comrades, and then you have your lover. Isn't that more than enough? The revolution is no holiday. Everyone must sacrifice. Everything for the commonwealth, everything for the triumph of the revolution. Thus was Vasilisa in the winter. But now it was spring. The sun shone so gaily, the sparrows chattered under the gables. Early in the morning, Vasilisa watched them, smiling as she remembered her lover, calling her a puffed-up sparrow. Spring sounded a call to life. It was more and more difficult to work. Vasilisa was anemic, and her lungs were affected. Vasilisa had organized a community house, a task she had taken over of her own accord, and which was entirely independent of her general party and Soviet work. The community house was dearest of all to her. She had long had the idea of organizing a model house where the communist spirit would prevail. 
not an ordinary community house where everyone would live for himself, where no one cared for his neighbor, where squabbling, bickering, and dissatisfaction were the rule, where no one was willing to work for the common good, where everyone was constantly making demands. No, Vasilisa had planned something quite different. Patiently, almost secretly, she had got the house ready. How many difficulties she had had. The house had been taken away from her twice. It had involved her in innumerable disputes. But finally, she had succeeded, had organized a community kitchen, a laundry, a nursery, a dining room, Vasilisa's pride with curtains at the windows and geranium plants and a library furnished like a club room. At the beginning, everything went well. The women who lived in the house covered Vasilisa with their moist kisses. There's our little darling, our guardian angel. You made everything so easy for us. It's too wonderful. But then the trouble began. The house rules were broken. It was impossible to teach the women cleanliness. They fought over the pots and pans in the kitchen. They let the wash tubs overflow, almost flooding the house. And every mistake, every quarrel, every disturbance brought complaints against Vasilisa, as if she were the landlady, as if she had been at fault. Punishments became necessary. The tenants grew angry, felt offended. Some of them moved away. Matters went on in this fashion, growing worse and worse, constant quarrels and differences. There were a couple of real troublemakers, the Fedoseevs. Nothing could please them, always nagging and nagging, though they didn't know themselves what they wanted, never satisfied. And they stirred up the others, chiefly because they had been the first to move into the house and felt as if it belonged to them. But what did they want? What didn't they like? Vasilisa couldn't understand, and they embittered her life, caused trouble every day. Vasilisa was weary, vexed to tears. She saw the failure of her plan, then a new order. Everything must be paid for with cash on delivery, water and electricity, taxes must be paid, assessments must be covered. Vasilisa was beset on all sides. There was no use. The new exchange rate, nothing could be done without money. Vasilisa worked like a slave. It might have been better to drop the whole business, but she was not that sort. Once she put her hand to anything, she saw it through. She went to Moscow, visiting various bureaus day after day. She approached the highest authorities. Her reports and accounts were received very favorably. Finally, she won her community house. They even assisted her with an allowance for repairs. But in the future, she would nevertheless have to make the house self-supporting. Vasilisa returned delighted. The troublemaking family, however, were sulky. They were cross with her, as if she harmed them by winning her fight for the community house. New worries began. The rumor spread that Vasilisa did not keep her house accounts straight and that she made a little profit on the side. It was hard then without her lover. She needed a close comrade. She wrote to him, called him, but important affairs prevented his coming. 
He had a new position of great responsibility. He had to systematize and reorganize the affairs of the firm in which he had formerly been a clerk. He had been complaining all winter. It was a difficult task. It was impossible for him to get away. Everything rested on his shoulders. And so Vasilisa had to bear the whole squalid business on her own. And what hurt her most about it was that it was the workers, her friends and allies, who were the cause of everything. If they'd been bourgeois anti-communists, she wouldn't have cared nearly so much. Mercifully, however, the House Committee supported her throughout. They hadn't let her bring the case to court, but decided that the committee members themselves should sort the whole thing out for her. They concluded that it was a clear case of slander based on nothing but malice and ignorance. But just when they were about to evict the Fedosievs, the couple had admitted their guilt, pleading for Vasilisa's forgiveness and assuring her how much they'd always respected her. Vasilisa's victory brought her no joy, for she was worn out, worried sick, and hadn't the strength to rejoice. After that, she had fallen ill. And although she went back to work almost immediately, she felt by then as though something had died inside her. She no longer loved her house. She'd suffered too much for it. It was as if her own child had been sullied in some way, and memories of her own childhood had come back. She remembered her little brother Kolka showing her a sweet, and when she reached out for it, he'd laughed spitefully and say, Look at me, I'm going to spoil your sweet for you. Then he'd spit on it and give it to her, saying, Here you are, Vasilisa. You can eat your sweet now. It's delicious. And Vasilisa would turn away from him, sobbing, Horrible boy, why did you do that? That was how she felt about the house. She just didn't want to be responsible for it anymore. She'd go on serving on the house committee, but she couldn't devote herself fully to it now. It could go to rack and ruin for all she cared. Towards the residents, she felt nothing but a deep coldness, for hadn't they joined the Fedosievs in attacking her? She began more and more to keep her distance from people. Before, she always had been so sympathetic to people's problems, but after everything she'd been through, she wanted nothing more than to be left alone in peace. Don't touch me. Leave me alone. I'm tired. So that was chapter one of Red Love. I am going to hold up the majority of my commentary until we get a little bit deeper into the novel, but I do just want to briefly reflect on the fact that this is somebody who is clearly a communist, very committed to the cause, tries to create this communal household for other workers, really throws herself into the project, and then, of course, has the workers turn on her and, you know, accuse her of of profiting on the side from the communal house and creating lots and lots of unpleasantness for her. I think it's really interesting that this is how Kolontai chooses to start the novel. I mean, obviously, Kolontai is, as you've known, if you've listened to this podcast from some of her other stories, she's very open and honest about the problems of educating workers to a new form of cooperative living, of being less selfish and self-involved than they have been in the past in what was a, a more dog-eat-dog kind of world under the Tsar and certainly you know, under capitalism. But it doesn't mean that these kinds of personal transformations are made overnight. Obviously, Vasilisa is an idealist. 
Obviously, again, I think Vasilisa is in some ways a reflection of Kolontai and her own idealism. As a young woman, she was also very opposed to the war. Uh, but the very disappointment that she feels of uh, towards her, her housemates, basically towards the, the fellow workers that she lives with, who treat her very poorly when she tries to do something for them uh, collectively to, to create a, a communal household that will actually you know, make it easier for, the, for them all to live together. The first thing that happens in this book is a, a bitter disappointment, uh, slander and lies. So, yeah, not a great, not an auspicious start to the novel. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight.